Welcome to the Beautiful Illusions Podcast, where two friends, Jeff and Darren, ponder the intersection of reality, consciousness, and culture. These conversations comprise an ongoing attempt to construct meaning by exploring art and science, enriching our understanding of the context underpinning our current moment in time, and imagining possible futures for human civilization. Of course, we don't claim any special knowledge, expertise, or insight into any of these topics. We just enjoy learning, thinking, and talking about big ideas, deep questions, and the beautiful illusion that is the subjective human experience. In today's episode, A New Enlightenment, The Age of Cognitivism, Jeff and I explore some of the major ideas of Enlightenment thought that have shaped our current historical era. Jeff lays out his vision for a new Enlightenment, an age of cognitivism that applies current insights gleaned from neuroscience and related fields about how brains and cognition work and the limits of current conceptions of reason in order to more fully realize the progressive vision of the original Enlightenment movement. Building off the work of two influential scientists and thinkers, biologist E.O. Wilson and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett, we discuss the predictive nature of our brain, the possibility of seeding our brain today to predict better in the future, and how the unification of the humanities and sciences might allow us to fully embrace what it means to be creative beings who are shaped by both biological and cultural evolution. As always, a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference can be found on our website, beautifulillusions.org. And now for today's episode, A New Enlightenment, The Age of Cognitivism. I think it was in college I was first introduced to the concept of the movements we've gone through in time. And it was in learning about English literature. And I learned about these different movements. Romanticism leads into realism, which leads into this and that. And it really, as a student, it was one of those things that really started to suck me in because it made me realize that there's this larger human discourse happening that goes back for forever. And that one movement is actually responding to the previous movement. And there's some give and take and some ideas are left behind and some ideas come to the forefront. And I wanted to dive in and see all these movements unfolding. And one of the movements that always drew my attention, especially when I started to teach. So um, I taught a humanities course for a while and I, I didn't love the Greeks and I didn't love teaching the myth and re- going through that. So I would always rush through that. And even the Renaissance kind of was like interesting to me and I would pay a little bit of attention to it, but the enlightenment is where my mind just sparks. The first quarter of the school year, I just kind of rushed through the earlier movements as quickly as possible because I just wanted to get to the enlightenment because everything from the enlightenment forward always was forefront in my mind. This is where we are today. This is what's really created what we are today. Uh, This is what I want my kids to see and understand. This is where it gets wacky and interesting and complex and goes in all these different directions. So I've always had a certain, uh, you know, soft spot in my heart for this movement known as the Enlightenment. That's funny that you said that the Enlightenment sparks your mind because uh, isn't that what enlightening literally almost means yeah i mean if we just look at what the enlightenment is really quickly so um there's different dates and for our purposes let's just say newton a lot of people put the beginning of it to isaac newton's principa mathematica first published in 1687 isaac newton's mathematical principles of natural philosophy often referred to as just the principles lays out among other major ideas like the law of universal gravitation newton's famous three laws of motion which form the basis for classical mechanics and the science of physics 
It is also notable in that Newton developed and used mathematical models to support his physical theories, many of which are now included in the field of calculus, and the principles is generally regarded as the culmination of the scientific revolution that had been ongoing since the 16th century. Along with works by the likes of René Descartes, whose famous philosophical proclamation, I think, therefore I am, is seen as a precursor to the philosophy of reason that undergirds much Enlightenment thought, and philosophers like John Locke, whose essay concerning human understanding was published in 1689, this early Enlightenment period provided the scientific, mathematical, and philosophical grounding for the major Enlightenment advances of the 18th century. The Enlightenment period is generally thought to conclude with the onset of the French Revolution in 1789 and the beginning of the 18th century. Immanuel Kant becomes a major philosopher of the time period, and Kant kind of lays out the Enlightenment with this quotation, he says. And this is actually in a little essay he wrote in 1784. What is Enlightenment? And I got this from the Great Conversation Philosophy book, which you recommended to me. Kant says, Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's understanding without guidance from another. This immaturity is self-imposed when its cause lies not in lack of understanding, but in lack of resolve and courage to use it without guidance from another. Sapere ade, dare to know. Have courage to use your own understanding. That is the motto of enlightenment. The textbook introduces this by saying the Enlightenment is an optimistic movement about reaching the best civilization possible through reason and individualism, but most especially through empiricism. So it comes off the scientific revolution and they head into this whole idea. I agree with you that that's a period of time that I've always connected to, uh, even though I didn't realize just how much I was connecting to it. So I talked a lot in my own philosophy episode about my attraction to Darwin and empiricism. Um, and obviously Darwin, you know, he comes later on in the picture. He's, he's kind of post enlightenment, but you know, he's working off that tradition of daring to understand to pull that quote from Kant, where he's using his reason in order to gather evidence and draw some conclusions about the world. The Enlightenment is also referred to as the age of reason. And although there have been many ideas throughout the history of Western culture about what reason is, how it relates to the mind, and how it might best be applied in finding truth and living a good life, the celebration of reason that marked Enlightenment thought is heavily influenced by the empirical emphasis of the preceding scientific revolution and can generally be regarded as the capacity of humans to consciously apply rational thinking based on evidence, discourse, and openness to new ideas as a means to gain knowledge and make sense of the world, as opposed to relying on blind faith, superstition, and other traditional dogma. The movement was highlighted by the progressive ideal that through their powers of reason and observation, humans can make nearly unlimited linear progress over time. The great statesmen are the founding fathers, right? They were using some of these ideas in the political sphere. How do we take our reason and how do we design these structures and these institutions that will allow this to happen on the level of society and civilization in order to make progress and move forward? Now, of course, it's a vision of progress that's bounded by the minds of those people, but they're working within this movement to try to say we can be humans and we can act using our knowledge to move things forward and make things better. And that even if now you can look back and see all the ways where it might have not quite worked as well. Ultimately, I do think it's an optimistic movement.
for a long time, I've always thought about like, so where are we now? What is the movement we think in now? And I'll be honest, initially, I think this was just kind of an egotistical thought, like I want to be the person to name our current movement. And one of the reasons I love Jack Kerouac is I always thought, oh, this is a kind of writer that I could be like, that's one of the things. And he named his little, you know, it wasn't a bigger era, it was a smaller little artistic movement, but he named them. He's like, we're the beat generation. But then like the more I read about him naming it the beat generation, the more I realized that there was some intent to naming it the beat generation. The initial meaning of beat is, and he talks about this, this is a paraphrase from him. He's like, we're beat and down with the world. So he's got this whole portion of the population that he sees as not being recognized by the larger conformist 50s. And he's saying we're the beat generation. But then beat to him also means uh, beatific, blissfully happy imparting holy bliss so he's like here we are this beat generation that's beaten down with the world but we are also beatific we are beautiful and then this name becomes a larger uh, almost a metaphorical way of looking at this other group and bringing them to at least recognition in sight so choosing the name of a movement becomes an important part of kind of starting to slowly steer the ship of culture maybe in a direction you wanted to head Which is why, like, and we've been talking about this for a while, and I did not come up with this name. We're going to talk about E.O. Wilson, uh, how he comes up with the name in another book. But I really want, when we look back at this time period, I really hope that we call it the new enlightenment. Because I see a lot of potential in that being the direction we head. To me, the bigger title is the new enlightenment, the age of cognitivism. And we'll talk a little bit more about what I see that meaning. That's the name I hope we start to grab onto and hold more and more. So if we take the Enlightenment as we understand it today, this optimistic movement that was about reaching the best civilization possible through reason and making the individual the prime mover, uh, you know, we're a collection of individuals and each individual person is able to use their reason in order to govern the society, in order to be creative, in order to live their best lives, right? That's the whole concept of liberty. And also using empiricism, right? So empiricism, reason, individuality, these are kind of these big ideas that come out of the Enlightenment. And at least in the West, uh, and it's particularly in America, you know, the, the idea of America really comes out of this Enlightenment thought. And, you know, can we have this giant democratic country that governs itself where the idea is that It's not because God said we are this and it's not because the king said we are this. It's of the people. And really, that's what it's about. And I would say that democracy's had a lot of success. Right. But like anything that's created by people, nothing is ever going to be perfect. And so we have enough distance, I think, from the Enlightenment now and enough technology has been developed, enough science has taken place, enough history has happened where we can kind of look back and reflect and say, all right, these are a lot of the really great aspects of this thought. And here's some of the things that potentially need to change. I know one of the things that I've been thinking for a long time, so all the years that I taught evolution, one of the things that I started to think about, and I have these conversations with students in class sometimes is, you know, is it possible that humans have changed the environment so much that we're maybe not as well adapted to it as we once were? Um, So in other words, 
we've made this global civilization that is much more complex than it used to be in the sense that there's just more information. So it used to be that people didn't know a lot of things because it was hard to come by actual information about the world. I don't mean to intimate that our ancestors from previous eras were unintelligent. There is certainly abundant evidence, not least of which is the fact that we are still here today, that people had plentiful information and skills related to their local world and surviving in it. But at the same time, most knew almost nothing about the wider world that existed beyond their local geographic area and did not have true conceptual or explanatory understanding of the plethora of natural phenomena filling that world or any way to access the most up-to-date thoughts and ideas about them. Technological innovation, the printing press and all these other media that come after that, we go from this situation of information scarcity to information abundance. So now we live in this technological civilization where information is all around us. And increasingly, the way we live our lives is immersed in information, right? Our work has more to do with information than it does with like the physical work of agriculture or even working in a factory or, or something along those lines. And is it possible that we're just not really well set up to deal with all this abundance of information and all this complexity? And maybe our civilizational institutions aren't set up to deal with it quite as well as they possibly could be. So if the idea now is to keep making progress, maybe it's time to kind of look at some of that stuff. And, and can we actually intentionally make some changes or make some adjustments in our institutions, in our culture in order to continue trying to make progress. And, you know, that word maybe is a little fraught, right? Progress, like whose progress, what progress, but the idea in and of itself that we move from where we are to someplace that's quote better. You know, one of the things that we say in the intro of this podcast is that we like to imagine possible futures for human civilization. And I think this is us doing that. And it's interesting to think what might we be able to take that was great and make it even better. Yeah, so one of the biggest things, what I like about what you're saying is this whole idea of this technology and information and this glut of information and how we're not necessarily in the right spot. Our brains were evolved 10,000 years ago to take in the African, uh, not the African span at that point, we were expanded beyond that, but to take right. in- Millions of years ago, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah but to take in the, the hunter-gatherer idea and start moving to the agricultural revolution. That's why I stressed before, I really hope that this ends up being the new enlightenment. And I really hope it gets that tag, the age of cognitivism, because imagine our major name for this era is the age of technology. To me, that means that technology took over us. Like to me, that's a reading of like where we allow the technology to control us a little bit more. But when you throw it as the new enlightenment, the age of cognitivism, it means we're starting to recognize how we function. We're starting to recognize this shift between our biological evolution and our cultural evolution. And we're maybe trying to bring them back together. So E.O. Wilson, as I mentioned before, what he talks about a lot in his book, The Origins of Creativity, is this combining of the sciences and the humanities and the bringing back together, which we've been talking about a little bit. And he's basically saying, one of the quotations, the more closely we examine the properties of metaphors and archetypes, the more it becomes obvious that science and the humanities can be blended. In the borderland of new disciplines created, it should also be possible to reinvigorate philosophy and begin a new more endurable enlightenment. So he's uh, seeing these two worlds coming back together. He's seeing our humanities, our culture, which has drifted away from science and not understood science completely, starting to bring back and recognize the scientific discoveries and empirically 
uh, make a new philosophy that heads us into an endurable future. And then there's various ways you could read endurable because of the possibility of heading towards destruction, which uh, some people see in our culture and things of that nature. I really like where he goes because really what he tries to do, and I think he does it very well and very successfully and makes a really strong argument that essentially our brains evolved, you know, millions of years ago. They're a product of biological evolution. And out of that, those initial conditions, as we start to develop civilization and, and really develop a more complex culture, there was these initial parameters in which that culture then developed. And, and primarily our mode of evolution in the last, you know, 10,000 years has really been cultural evolution, almost more so than biological evolution. And if we think of the humanities as really what drives that cultural evolution, right, it's really important to recognize how that has power to move things forward, right? So he says the drive for innovation, and this is a quote, the drive for innovation can be viewed as an analog of genetic evolution and to good effect. Cultural evolution adapts our species to the inevitable and constantly changing conditions of the environment. Its innovations are equivalent of mutations in the genome. We can value no less the innovations, only a few of which prove successful that drive the creative arts. So this, this idea that, you know, and really, you know, to take it back to this Darwinian concept where the way, quote, progress happens is there's a whole lot of variation out there in the environment. But variation in and of itself is not inherently good, what happens is some of those variations are inevitably better for the current context than others. And the, the idea there is the ones that are better keep getting propagated and the ones that don't work quite as well fall away and maybe even they disappear completely. And that happens in genetic evolution, but it also can happen in cultural evolution. So, you know, the idea here is that science and the humanities share the same origin and brain processes of creativity. He literally says that in the book and that we can bring them closer together, right? Because culture is ultimately bound up in our biological evolution. It's important for us to recognize that. And it's important for us to understand how these two different, and they're not really different, right? They're not, they're not like they work in opposition to one another. Culture is a outpouring of humanity, which makes it a biological thing, right? So there's more unity than we like to uh, maybe recognize, or maybe that we do recognize, because so much of how we interact with the world is based on categories. So we naturally categorize things like me and you are doing it right now when we talk about arts and sciences as if they're two mutually exclusive things. And what Wilson is pointing out is what we need to do is understand how all these things are unified together. And that will give us a more holistic picture of really what it is to be a human being and, and what we need to do in order to move civilization forward. Well, and I think that the other interesting part of this, and based on Wilson's book as a whole, I think he would agree with this. Uh, maybe we need to figure out whether there is a difference between cultural evolution, which is analog, and biological evolution. Uh, we do not have complete control over. It's this natural selection. We don't actually get to select. But in cultural evolution, 
do we have a little bit more control over it? Can we make a little bit more of a selection in the processes of culture? And I, I mean, I would debate, uh, that's a, uh, we could spend a whole episode just debating whether we can or not. Uh, I optimistically assume that we can make some cultural choices. And be, considering that Wilson wrote a whole book where he's trying to affect our cultural choices and trying to move our cultural and humanities choices more towards the scientific ends i would say that he agrees with me and one of the things he's proposing is that he's saying that these new like social sciences become are this important connector and he names five of them paleontology anthropology psychology evolutionary biology and neurobiology and then for me the focus here and we've talked so much about this but i mean it's just such an important thing for me to be like culturally important are the new findings we're finding in what he calls neurobiology, what we call neuroscience, we're going to transition into this idea of neuroscience. So we read two books in preparation. And the other one we read is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And this is a book I would highly recommend because it's such a readable little book. And it's basically a collection of all the major neuroscience findings that we currently know. Uh, and Barrett mentions several times through the course of writing that some of these are still not solidified. They're not uh, finalized. They're still being debated. She has a whole appendix where she includes the science that's still going on. So if we're going to have this new enlightenment where we want to move forward, this is something we should look at. Our neuroscience is a place we should start because Kant and Hume and all these great philosophers from the enlightenment emphasized our reason. And they use their conscious mind to try and figure out empirically what reason is. And it's funny when you read them because Hume was almost close, but he didn't have neuroscience behind it to reach that final conclusion of what it was like. But now we do have this neuroscience. So empirically, we should look at these findings and start to think about, all right, now what can we do with that in the same way that the Enlightenment philosophers tried to use their observations of reason? Yeah, I think when you look at those five fields that Wilson delineates, when you're talking about paleontology and anthropology and evolutionary biology, you're understanding our past, right? Our evolutionary past, our cultural past. Psychology, in order to understand kind of how the mind works in terms of our thinking, which jives with neurobiology, the actual structure of our brain and how it's physiologically doing what it does in order to create the mind, right? That's huge. But really what we want to do is understand our past so we can understand our present in order to hopefully continue to make progress moving into the future, right? And again, it's this idea of integrating and I think the Barrett book is really great because it does give you this sense of where we are right now in terms of understanding the brain. And when we talk about mind and brain, I think this is something that can be confusing at times. I know it was confusing to me when I first started encountering all of these different conversations about consciousness and subjective experience and all that. And when you're reading the neuroscience, you know, the brain is literally just referring to the physical brain, right? The neurons that are all connected together and the glial cells and all the other stuff and how the physical brain actually functions. And the mind is like this product of the brain, which is your conscious thought, essentially. So whenever you are thinking, that is your mind. But your brain 
is the physical structure, right? And so how does the brain actually function? And then how does the mind emerge from the brain? And a lot of that has to do with philosophy of mind. And there's a lot of slightly different nuanced fields that kind of integrate together to try to figure this stuff out. But I think one of the things that's really great about reading the Barrett book is it kind of dispels some of the lingering ideas about how our brain works using the most current science. Because there's even a debate happening right now. And some of the neuroscientists are proposing that we get rid of the term mind, like that that term mind doesn't even necessarily apply. But then there's debate back from other neuroscientists who say we should still use this word mind. And I would say that Barrett is saying that this delineation is hard because like you said, mind meaning our conscious processes, but the brain is actually functioning in a way where like mind is always there. Uh, this unconscious is always happening because I would say this is one of the big things that are, is taking a step forward from the enlightenment and idea of reason because the enlightenment was like, we are a reasonable being and we could sit down and we could look at evidence and we could come up with conclusions and we could make these choices. And then what ended up happening is they used that too excessively and they thought it could go in different directions. But now, based on what we're finding, your mind is not as reasonable as you think it is. A lot of it has happened unconsciously. Oh, actually, let me rephrase that. Your mind is not the same reason that you think it is. It's not the reason where you suddenly kick in and mind's working. This is mind. This is mind different from brain. Um, and this is kind of the debate. Your mind is kind of constantly functioning underneath, making choices without you even realizing it's making choices and moving you forward. Because she boils it down. She says, your brain's most important job, this is a quote from her, is to control your body to manage allostasis by predicting energy needs before they arise so you can efficiently make worthwhile movements and survive. So this is the basic functioning of our brain. And one of her biggest things, and this is kind of one of the things I really want to talk about, is she thinks that in this functioning where you're balancing out and trying to uh, maintain this allostasis, your mind is actually, or your brain, mind, whatever, and this the whole blend becomes interesting because what you think is possibly just your brain is functioning maybe in this mind level without you recognizing it. Because she says sometimes an emotion is rational, like when you're afraid because you're in imminent danger. And sometimes thinking isn't rational. So this would be that big contradiction to the enlightenment idea of being able to be such a reasonable being. She says, when you scroll through social media for hours, uh, telling yourself you're bound to come across something important, perhaps rationality is better defined in terms of body budgeting. In this view, rationality means spending or saving resources to succeed in your media environment. So with these new findings, we really need to start considering where can we trust the reason we attribute to this mind idea and how can we possibly better this reason that's happening underneath what we normally thought of as the mind, the reason that's constantly going on to budget your body and uh, help you survive on a regular basis. Yeah, this concept of allostasis is really interesting because we teach in biology class about the concept of homeostasis, right? Where, you know, the body is trying to maintain this balance and it's essentially a reactive process, homeostasis. It's things change in the world. And in response to those changes, you bring in a little more sodium, you kick out a little more potassium, your cells on the cellular level, you know, would be doing this. And, that, and by doing that, using energy, they maintain the balance that's necessary for proper cell function. And then, you know, that integrates into, you know, tissue function and organ function and up all the way to the level of the organism, right? And, and this idea of homeostasis, maintaining this balance by reacting to the environment, 
what allostasis is, is it's this other idea where it's not reacting to the environment directly. It's instead reacting to your body's internal conditions, right? So like there are always readings going from your inside of your body to your brain because your brain is responsible for monitoring all those systems to make sure things are you know happening the way they need to happen and then based on those internal signals your brain is making predictions about the environment that you're in and then constructing thoughts and emotions as an impetus for you to then do the things that you need to do to then be able to maintain that internal environment that you need to survive. And she points out that a lot of this kind of thinking and the support for it comes out of other systems that aren't even biological where, you know, you're talking about systems design and I don't have the quote right now, but I I remember reading where she's talking about how it's not efficient to design a system that is primarily reactive because you have to wait for a thing to happen and then you have to figure out, you know, what is the appropriate response. It's much more energy efficient to use the memory you already have and the internal, you know, signals that you're getting to predict what needs to happen and then making the necessary adjustments ahead of time. And this predictive nature of the brain, this is a really interesting concept because when you start to think about this idea of being able to separate the reason or the mind or the conscious thought from the unconscious processing as if you could suddenly pause one and it's holistic, it's a holistic system and it's all integrating together. So, you know, we talked a lot in one of the episodes, I think it was Boxing Aristotle or uh, one of the other ones where we talked a lot about how some of these ancient Greek things thinkers would think about the mind and think about like this battle between the rational part and the emotional part. And Barrett basically kind of calls that out at this point and says like, you know, that maybe isn't the best way to think about it because it's not these separate things. So she says, you know, in this quote, to move past Plato's ancient battle, rationality versus emotional instinct, we might need to fundamentally rethink what it means to be rational, what it means to be responsible for our actions, and perhaps what it means to be a human. Continuing on, in other words, your brain combines information from outside and inside your head, like your memory, to produce everything you see, hear, smell, taste, and feel. And some of this is being done, you know, we don't know to what degree, and this is all research that's being done now. A lot of it is done in a predictive way, not in a reactive way. So maybe fundamentally, the way our thought processes, our conscious thought processes, our slow thinking, the way we've used it in the in the Kahneman sense, Maybe it's not acting quite in the way that we think that it was and and that the Enlightenment thinkers thought that it was. And maybe that's why we need to kind of reassess and add this neuroscience into this this new cognitivism, this new Enlightenment, right? This idea of how do we incorporate that knowledge of how our brain actually works to maybe tweak what we're currently doing in order to get even better outcomes than the ones we already get. And fortunately for us, Barrett actually goes into some of these ideas and how we can do this. Uh, She goes into this whole section on learning. But I want to take a brief step backwards and think about just where we're coming from for the Enlightenment. I mean, the impressive part about these Enlightenment philosophers is they are very much on the brink of predicting this. Like if they had Barrett's findings, they would have had these amazing insights probably on what to do with them. We always have to remember the context of when they're writing. Like Kant's writing, I believe I said in the beginning, is 1787 this essay is happening. So in the West, the monarchy is still prevalent. The church has a ton of power over you as a person. 
you don't have that much of a voice. So as you said, this optimistic movement is a leap forward. And Kant has this quotation about independent thinking. And then we'll see how Barrett kind of responds to this and how we, uh, she doesn't respond directly to Kant, but I'm making her respond to Kant. So he says, it is so comfortable to be a minor, uh, and some translations say immature. If I have a book that thinks for me, a pastor who acts as my conscience, a physician who prescribes my diet, and so on, then I have no need to exert myself. I have no need to think if I can only pay. Others will take care of that disagreeable business for me. Those guardians who have kindly taken supervision upon themselves see it to that the overwhelming majority of mankind, among them the entire fair sex, should consider the step to maturity not only as hard, but extremely dangerous. It's funny because we've already talked about how in the modern world, things are so complex that we want to pay somebody to do some of these other things. But I mean, the beauty of this in the time period is to say that, you know, my pastor doesn't necessarily speak for me. And I could think of myself, this book I'm reading doesn't necessarily speak for me. And I could speak for myself. This government controlling me doesn't necessarily speak for me. And I could speak for myself. But now the neuroscience comes in and it's like, how much are you actually speaking for yourself? Like how much of this is actually the idea of reason? In seven and a half lessons about the brain, Barrett states this explicitly with the half lesson that opens the book titled, Your Brain is Not for Thinking, which lays the foundation for the subsequent seven lessons. In a New York Times op-ed piece of the same title, published in November 2020, she draws a brief sketch of the evolution of the animal brain and then writes, quote, This story of how brains evolved, while admittedly just a sketch, draws attention to a key insight about human beings that is too often overlooked. Your brain's most important job isn't thinking. It's running the systems of your body to keep you alive and well. According to recent findings in neuroscience, even when your brain does produce conscious thoughts and feelings, they are more in service to the needs of managing your body than you realize. Your brain runs your body using something like a budget. This view of the brain has many implications for understanding human beings. So often, for example, we conceive of ourselves in mental terms, separate from the physical. In body budgeting terms, however, this distinction between mental and physical is not meaningful. Your brain is not for thinking. Everything that it conjures, from thoughts to emotions to dreams, is in the service of body budgeting. What Barrett does for us is she starts to say that there are ways where you can almost train the predictive aspects of your brain to be prepared for given situations to be better at making the right choice, to be better at uh, being a better person. So you become an individual thinker in what you set yourself up for and how you create this model. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is that when you talk about what Kant is saying there, essentially what he's talking about is, you know, if you think about what we try to do in school all the time, you know, what's the biggest C word that we try to create in our students? They're all going to be critical, critical thinkers. thinkers. Right? Everyone's going to be a critical, independent thinker. And really, it, as I hear you saying that quote, it's like, well, where does that come from? This idea that we could all be these critical, independent thinkers. And I am definitely not suggesting that we go back to being told everything by some other authority. But at the same time, I also recognize having worked with learners for my whole professional career and being what I consider a lifelong learner and trying to understand things on my own, getting to the point where you could actually think critically about any specific topic 
is really hard work and it takes a long time. You need to acquire quite a bit of information. It's really easy, again, to think that you know a lot about a thing, right? And, and, and this is where sometimes you, you go back to this ancient wisdom and this whole piece that me and you both pull from Socrates, the wisdom to know that I don't know a thing and not claim knowledge that I don't have is one of the truest bits of wisdom. And I think if this Kant idea is misapplied, what we can end up with is a situation where we expect everyone to be an independent critical thinker about everything, and it's really just not possible because of what I was talking about before, that the trend as time goes by is our current technological information-based civilization just generates more technology and more information all the time. So to understand any one given thing, it, like it is hard. In addition to the difficulty with thinking critically using the scientific framework that emerged from enlightenment thought – Due to the truly immense body of knowledge that has been accumulated and the inherent complexity of the modern world, there is the fact that this way of knowing is not even universally accepted, as many people the world over determine truth in much more intuitive, experiential, or faith-based ways. To quote Dana Boyd, who conducts research largely focused on the intersection of technology, information, and society, and who founded the organization Data and Society, no matter what worldview or way of knowing someone holds dear, they always believe that they are engaging in critical thinking when developing a sense of what is right and wrong, true and false, honest and deceptive. But much of what they conclude may be more rooted in their way of knowing than any specific source of information. If we're not careful, media literacy and critical thinking will simply be deployed as an assertion of authority over epistemology. These ideas of different ways of knowing and epistemology are something we plan to explore further in future episodes of Beautiful Illusions. I think what Barrett says and kind of where you were going is the idea is that we can work on ways to make our thinking skills better so that we can handle some of these situations a little bit better when we encounter them. But it's very hard to do it in the moment when you need it to happen, right? Because of the way your brain works, where it's pulling from memories and all these internal stimuli. If you don't have the learning already, if you don't have those habits of mind already, when you get into the situation, then all you're going to do is pull from what's your brain has already done in the past, right? And so the idea is how do we cultivate these mental habits or these critical thinking skills, critical, well, critical thinking skills or, or just uh, dispositions in ourselves. What I would say is it's uh, how do we cultivate these um, quick unconscious choices to head us in the proper direction? How do we cultivate these new rationalizations? What Barrett calls the rational thinking that happens underneath our awareness of it. But how do we cultivate it so it happens in the blink of an eye because where we are right now because uh, you pointed this out and I, I think this is a good thing to notice where we are right now is we're still on the individual level and then wilson's going to bring us back into the cultural level and how we might do this and so barrett talks about what actually happens in your brain and she talks about the two processes that kind of like are revising the connections tuning which is the strengthening connections between neurons so if you use this connection a lot uh it becomes stronger and stronger and then pruning where you're getting rid of less used connections. And these two enable the brain to tailor itself to diverse environments. And this is what she thinks is amazing about the brain and how it works. Uh, this arrangement helps our cultural and social knowledge flow efficiently from generation to generation. So this is where we take this idea of tuning and pruning and think about how we're passing on information to the next one. And it's up to us to create the world including a social world rich with wiring instructions to grow those brains 
healthy and whole. So this is where we think about, you know, this is happening on the individual level. level. So how do we as a larger culture make the proper decisions to help in the tuning and pruning process? Uh, and I, we're not going to answer this one today, Darren. But like, this is the projection that uh, how do we start making this happen for me? And I keep saying this, but just recognizing that it's happening is step number one, right? And then moving forward from that and thinking about the best way to do it is steps ad infinitum for forever that we'll do as a culture. Yeah, I was just saying cultivating these habits of mind or dispositions, you know, or one of the things that I know I texted this to you the other day that I notice, and I think everyone will notice this is how quick we are to form opinions about things, right? And part of that is just the way our brains work, but also it's very much culturally constructed as well, right? Where the way we emphasize like everyone, you need to have an opinion about this or how we form these judgments very quickly. And just to use as an example of kind of what Barrett's suggesting, you can in any situation you find yourself in, literally ask yourself the question, okay, here's a piece of information I got. It's making me think this thing. Is that reliable? Do I need to seek some more information? Should I just wait until I know a little bit more before I decide if this is good or bad or you know whatever, right? And these are the kinds of things that we would need to work on. And I know we're not gonna go down this avenue too much today, but I mean, if I'm reading it correctly, I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that we wanna do, right? We wanna work on things like, you know, less certainty, more inquiry, delaying judgment, those kinds of habits of mind, that would be the way that we could maybe apply the reason in a more constructive way. Because what you've done is you've set up a situation where you've trained your brain for future situations. When it does that unconscious rational processing, it's just pulling on a different set of memories and and skills than it would be maybe otherwise, right? And so we do have some control over that in the present. Yeah, and Barrett talks about it, and she's got this great whole section. I remember when you read it, you texted me the photos of these five pages, and I took a chunk of it out just to get a sense of what she talks about in this section. She says, you can invest a little time and energy to learn new ideas. You can curate new experiences. And to me, that's key, like curating new experiences and thinking about exploring and seeing and building the brain model and adding connections into the brain model so that when you hit something, you're ready for it instead of going off into an angry diatribe. You can try new activities. Everything you learn today seeds your brain to predict differently tomorrow. Yeah, that's the concept in those couple of words, seeding your brain today to predict better tomorrow. Because it's that whole idea that like our brain, that unconscious piece is happening ahead of the conscious piece. Before it's in our mind, the brain is already working on it before we're consciously aware of it. So seeding, I love that. That's a really great little nugget there to drive home that concept. Yeah. And then she goes into a couple of pretty just normal everyday examples. So whenever we take a test, you know, you have a certain level of anxiety. Well, if students practice for this and get used to this, then that little bit of stress can actually be beneficial for them and it won't freeze them so they're unable to take the test. She actually talks about some pretty big ones too. She says, it's also possible to change predictions to cultivate empathy for other people and act differently in the future. And she talks about, it seems like something like a camp almost where Israeli and Palestinian teens come together and they play soccer, they canoe, they do a bunch of different activities with each other and actually form bonds and connections. Uh, she talks about Pakistani and Indian teens doing this too. She talks about picking a controversial political issue and just, I think she says like five minutes a day, you know, read different sides of this issue. 
in your brain rather than just like, I am right. And this is the one side to look at things. You think that's your reason saying it, but it's actually just this connection in your model formed in the past. Uh, and then if you start to expand that connection and say, like, like you brought up Socrates before, maybe I'm not exactly right. Maybe I should listen to this other person on the other side of me. So uh, a, a lot of this is happening. Uh, and it, it's almost like we need to train ourselves more. Maybe we should talk about education eventually. Yeah. And then she ends this. And I love the ending of this because the Enlightenment philosophers, Kant and Hume, they each engaged in this idea of free will. And they both tried to use reason very much to prove that free will exists. But uh, I love what Barrett says, adding new experiences, adding new activities. All the examples she just listed is a form of free will, or at least something we can arguably call free will. We can choose what we expose ourselves to. So maybe in a moment, because so much is already planted in our brain, so much is happening. Maybe somebody could debate that that's not free will. But in the time previous to that given moment where you're choosing to read different sides of a political spectrum or choosing to hang out with somebody who's from a different group, that is free will. That is our ability to set ourselves up to reason properly in any given moment, even if that reason is unconscious. Every time we have these conversations, I just always keep coming back to the concept of intellectual humility. It really just comes down to that, like in any given situation, recognizing that there's a whole lot of things going on in the background that are causing you to think whatever it is that you're currently thinking. Right. And just being a little more aware of that and being a little more aware of the idea that uh, I just read this in I think it was in um, mistakes were made, but not by me. I think I read something that like one of the most durable findings in social science is that there is no strong correlation between how strongly you feel you're right and how actually right you are. So in other words, people feel really right about things all the time. And sometimes they are right. And sometimes they're not right. And really what we should learn from that is that we should be a little more skeptical of the feeling of rightness that we have. And then we should be working on training ourselves to maybe be able to handle those situations a little bit better. And so my proposal, and people are starting to do this already. For me, the age of cognitivism isn't just starting to understand how our brain works and reading books like Barrett's and all the other amazing neuroscientists out there and just keeping track of it and seeing where it goes. My further proposal is the idea of starting to use a cognitive lens. Uh, so I'm going to start with my expertise and this can eventually expand into our culture as a whole. So we talk about critical lenses and there's currently debate over critical lenses, whether they're useful or beneficial. They are beneficial for me as a high school teacher. They help me show students that they could look at a text from a different angle. They are scary when you get into making them orthodoxy and that's a whole different discussion. But I would love to add cognitivism as a new critical lens. I'd love to read a novel and read it with a cognitive lens where you're starting to look at the unconscious choices and you're starting to use different things. I mean, we're kind of moving past this idea of system one and system two based on things that Barrett says, but even looking at a book and seeing where a person's system one, system two differentiates or looking at how like emotional response is happening. And to me, this would be almost training the brain, like Barrett says, to be more prepared for these own situations in your life. So I would love in a couple of months, maybe if you and I actually went back to the great 
Gatsby and started to explore this idea of cognitivism and how we can turn a cognitive lens because Gatsby creates a fictional version of himself, essentially. It'd be a cool way to look at it. Uh, And again, this is something that's already happening, as far as I can tell. It's because E.O. Wilson essentially starts to do it in the end of The Origins of Creativity, and he even makes a pretty awesome statement that heads towards it. He says, art criticism needs to excavate much more deeply. It stands to make a lot more sense, most certainly amplified with knowledge originating science. Otherwise, the creative arts will continue to grow like trees sprouted outside the forest, less than the part of the living world ecosystem. So bringing cognitivism in our analysis of literature, to me, is a step to excavate deeper into the arts. I love your idea of rereading Gatsby through the cognitive lens for two reasons. One, I've come to really love Gatsby. I reread it occasionally, and I just think that it does, you know, capture something interesting about the human experience. Uh, As you were talking, I think it's interesting to think on many levels, right? If we were looking at the book through the cognitive lens, you can analyze the author's intent perhaps in a completely different way than you ever did before, right? Because it's like, well, what do we know about how human brains work? Why would the author even be conceiving of fictional characters in the way that they do? And then why would the author be having them do the things that they do, right? So it's like, by writing Gatsby or by writing Nick, you know, like a certain way or by writing Daisy a certain way, that says something about the way the author actually thinks about humanity, right? And so it, it just there's just so many levels on which that would become interesting, right? Because you can analyze the characters and what they're doing through the cognitive lens based on what we all know about like humans and how they behave. And, and But that's based on some sense that the author has of how humans uh, behave too, right? So there's really so much potential here. And it's also a really great way to integrate science into a humanities class in a very authentic kind of way that doesn't feel forced, right? It's like, hey, you know, here's how the brain works. And this is going to also impact how we perceive the book when we read it, how we perceive the actions of the characters, how the author may have come up creatively with this stuff in the first place. It's like, it really just gives you a way to tie all this stuff together, the biology and the culture and the science. And I'm like getting excited thinking about it because, you know, as I'm talking about it, I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this would be really cool. You know, I want to take that class. Well, you know what? It's a more empirical scientific extension of the, because there currently is a psychoanalytical lens, but everybody knows that Freud is a bunch of bullshit. So this is like the truth uh, behind that that would expand it and uh, wilson does it at the end of the book you remember reading it he goes through like movies and how we like he i would say this more in like the uh almost like a biological lens but he looks at like our deeper history and our cognitive connection back to our, our past and like the quest and now the quest has been with us since the beginning and now it's still with us and then i read this whole other book and i just want to give it a quick shout out this guy jeremy lent wrote this and you uh you sent me you found this book we don't even we don't even know where you found it but he, it's the patterning instinct jeremy lent uh, and he basically takes a cognitive lens on big history and tries to look at how our brains have been shaped by our culture and it's just worth mentioning because he's doing exactly what i imagine doing in uh literature uh literature is a little bit easier to do he's taking on a giant task of looking at our whole history and how it's shaped and i'll talk quickly about like what he does with it he basically looks at how the dualist nature that develops in the west leads to an idea of conquering nature 
through like Francis Bacon. And it's so funny that earlier you mentioned how the word progress is fraught and Francis Bacon is very much like one of the beginners of this idea of progress and moving forward. Called the father of empiricism and referred to by none other than E.O. Wilson as the grand architect of the Enlightenment, the philosopher Francis Bacon is generally credited with developing the scientific method. His works emphasize that scientific knowledge could be gained through a skeptical and methodical approach based on inductive reasoning and careful observation of nature, whereby scientists avoid misleading themselves. Bacon felt that the metaphysical ideas of the classical thinkers, all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, were holding back humanity, and that once the human mind was freed from these ideas, and metaphysical speculation was replaced by knowledge based on experience and induction, organized by clear and regular methods, that the reality of nature could be revealed, and nature could be conquered, quote, for the relief of man's estate. In Bacon's view, this conquering of nature could remove many of the harsh constraints of physical human existence, and consequently, so too would be removed the vain illusions that disturb the soul and cause political strife. On the foundation of modern science would rise the rational and secular state, whose business is progress. The idea of progress as an organized and benevolent project was first broached by Bacon, who was revered by the figures of the later Enlightenment of the 18th century. Lent looks at Bacon as one of the people who started this metaphor of conquering nature in the West. And then he compares it to how the Chinese culture sees nature as an organism, not as a machine, whereas the West, we see nature as a machine. In the Chinese culture, they see us as a reverent guest of nature, where here in the West, we see us as the conqueror of nature in control of nature. And basically, he uses this cognitive lens of history essentially as an argument for environmentalism. It becomes rather interesting. Again, it's filled with holes because it's such a big thing to take on. But it was very cool for me to read because I'm like, this is what I imagine happening in a literary sense or even in a cultural sense as a whole. And of course, like it's also super political because it ends up being an environmental track, which is another thing you need to think about in cognitivism. So who is your audience going to be becomes a whole nother level of who's actually going to read this book or who's going to shut this book down as soon as they see my political angle and not read past the fifth page. I love your question of like uh, the cognitive lens applied to how the author's thinking. How do I get past that confirmation bias heading towards expertise in English? That's what I think I can do right now to move towards this larger title of New Enlightenment, The Age of Cognitivism. That's the one action I can take. But I think we both agree that there needs to be a larger discussion. I don't think we need a revolution. I don't think we need to completely change our institutions. I'm pretty happy with liberalism in general. Uh, again, this is a discussion we could have. But I think with this idea, with the New Enlightenment hopefully taking hold, with the Age of Cognitivism hopefully taking hold, I don't think it's a bad idea to re-examine and discuss and think if we take this cognitive lens on a culture as a whole, how might we reshape this? How might we think about neuroscience findings and other things coming about and just make some tweaks so that people can 300 years from now have their own discussion about what the movement is in that moment? You made me just think so many thoughts. You sparked my thinking while I was listening to you say that. You know, first, I, I just think that one of the amazing things in theory about the society we set up based on some of these Enlightenment ideals is this idea of democracy and a plurality of views, right? And if we take that seriously, this idea that 
everyone's going to have these different views. And in the marketplace of ideas, we're going to persuade each other fundamentally assumes that we are persuadable and that we are able to integrate this information in a way to then make the best possible decisions. And then what does best even mean? And then what is best for the individual versus what is best for the collective? So there's just so much complexity there to explore. And you can understand why something like this would sound really good to set up and then be really hard to actually do. And I've heard a lot of great thinkers that are around now basically saying, you know, like democracy is hard. It's not an easy thing. Like if we take it seriously and we really want to have a democratic society that kind of operates based on the theoretical foundations upon which it's built, it's a lot of hard work for the citizens of that democracy to make it function in a way that is somewhat similar to the intent of how it's supposed to function. And is that work that humans are actually capable of doing at the necessary level, which goes back to my earlier comments about the current nature of the complexity and information abundance of our environment. Although I do think we are persuadable, ultimately, although maybe not in the consciously rational way we think we are, maybe based on what we currently do know about our brains and the work being done in the relatively recently emergent field of behavioral economics, you know, we're integrating neuroscience, psychology, economics and such to explore the bounds of our rationality and how psychological, biological, cognitive, sociocultural, emotional factors all impact our decision-making and behavior, maybe it's time to reconsider or make tweaks, as you suggest, to some of our institutions. So that was kind of thought number one. Thought number two was it's interesting to think about new enlightenment cognitivism in the short term which would be like, how do we get the headwinds kind of going and implement this? You know, you, you can feel the strands of it coming together from all these thinkers in all these different places in science and philosophy and education. And it's coalescing in some sense. So there's that initial phase where like it's got to come together and then it's got to somehow take hold in a way that where it reaches more people. And then you can imagine the challenges around that. But then you can also then start to imagine, okay, so let's say this does happen. And in a hundred years from now, we look back at this era and we label it, you know, the new enlightenment and here's how it made things better. And now here's what we can do because we, we did these things. And then what's going to happen inevitably is we're going to realize here's all the flaws with that, you know? And I think one of the things that we really should integrate is this idea that we're going to just have to embrace the concept of continuous change in what we're going to learn. And that's going to necessitate tweaks. That's where this dividing line, which isn't exactly a dividing line, we can't see it as the dividing line, where seeing cultural evolution and how closely it's analogous to biological evolution, recognizing that we can maybe affect slightly the shape towards the future. But I think cultural evolution has an aspect of natural selection to it. Like you said, the complexities of it. I don't think we can fully choose where culture heads. I think using some of Barrett's ideas uh, and even like some of what Wilson's saying, I think you can influence it. I think you can set up the model to head towards a better version of it. But I also think that there's just 7 billion factors that are going to come into play. I can never sit down and write that this is going to be this way and then this is going to happen and then this is obviously going to be there. Uh, you can like, to use that phrase you love from Barrett, you can put the seeds out there and hope that it's heading in that direction. It's appropriate for me to mention right now that I'm reading a Jefferson biography, an enlightenment thinker, because you just talked about democracy. 
and democracy has been messy since day one. Like Democratic Republic that we started has been messy since day number one. Immediately, two factions started. Immediately, they were destroying each other in the press. Immediately, both factions thought that they were necessary for this union to move forward. So yeah, we're never going to completely control it, but we can seed it forward. Right. And, you know, to go back to the Wilson, one of the things that he talks about a little bit is, you know, how our institutions essentially were formed based on structures that even existed pre-Enlightenment and then informed by Enlightenment thinking. And to move forward, the reason he wants to unite humanities with the sciences is because the humanities, the stories that we tell and these fictions, this is what drives us. I always think of it as the arts is like the emotional side of humanity. And it's the emotions that really drive us forward. I like this quote from Wilson. He says, the human enterprise has been to dominate earth and everything on it while remaining constrained by a swarm of competing nations, organized religions, and other selfish collectives, most of whom are blind to the common good of the species and planet. The humanities alone can correct this imperfection. Being focused on aesthetics and value, they have the power to swerve the moral trajectory into a new mode of reasoning, one that embraces scientific and technological knowledge. To fulfill this role, the humanities will need to blend with science because the new mode, above all, depends on a self-understanding of our species, which cannot be acquired without objective scientific research. Like the sunlight and firelight that guided our birth, we need a unified humanities and science to construct a full and honest picture of what we truly are and what we can become. That combination is the potential bedrock of the human intellect. Yeah. I just 100% agree. To me, using a cognitive lens on literature and trying to play around with this is one way I can start with my expertise. And then I feel like we have to bring it back to Barrett because she's been such a part of this. And this is an awesome quotation. Also bring us back to an optimistic note because we both believe that the new enlightenment is an optimistic movement. But Barrett says, we as a culture choose the features of discrimination and draw dividing lines that magnify the differences between the group we call us and the group we call them. The lines aren't random, but they aren't stipulated by biology either. So she's helping answer my question. It's not uh, just biology. And after the lines are drawn, people treat skin tone as a symbol for something else. That is social reality. Social reality is a superpower. A superpower works best when you know you have it. And I would say we would add to this that uh, layers of reality, social reality, uh, it's also beautiful. Uh, but we would add to this also that uh, that's a big aspect of that social reality is the humanities, is the culture, is the stories we tell and the way we tell those stories. And so we, uh, I'm, I'm going to say we, are you with me on this? Can I use you in this uh, pronoun? Yes, go for it. All right. So we hope to head towards a movement that becomes the new enlightenment, the age of cognitivism. And to us, it's an optimistic movement about continuing to reach for the best in our civilization. And we just need to keep updating it using current findings and pushing for a cultural revolution that catches up with our scientific knowledge. Yeah. Here, here. Thank you for listening to Beautiful Illusions. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation and more importantly, that it made you think about something in a new way. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and more importantly, share with your friends. 
The Beautiful Illusions theme was written, performed, and recorded by Darren Vigliotti and Joseph Vigliotti. For a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference, corrections and elaborations, as well as other miscellaneous bits and pieces, please visit our website, beautifulillusions.org. 